All right, you guys, welcome back to Freedom Papers. This is, what are you doing on my set? <laughs> Connor's causing destruction. Welcome back to Freedom Papers. I'm pretty excited, I guess, to have Connor Clegg other than when he's not throwing things at our precious James Madison. I wasn't throwing it at Madison. I was throwing it at the book. I just realized we don't have an Alexander Hamilton one. Like, maybe that's mean. Well, we're just showing our preferences. Uh, we were talking today, you guys. I prefer Madison's writing. What do you think? Put it in the comments. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you guys, today we're on the last section of taxation in part one. Now, Ooh. if you've been an OG watcher and listener of Freedom Papers, like Connor is, super fan, fan. he goes home and watches these after filming. That's how much he loves it. I actually do, but that's mainly because <laughs> I'm a narcissist. <laughs> I just love hearing myself talk. <laughs> um, so if you guys are OG fans and you've watched the first episodes where we talked about the structure of the Federalist Papers, there's 85 Federalist Papers, there's Anti-Federalist Papers, and they're kind of going at each other other debating the issues but an interesting fact about them is that the first section there's two sections of the federalist the first section is kind of talking about why we should be a union what we need to do compared to the articles of confederation and why we need to make a change in the first place the second half is explaining the actual structure and breakdown of the proposed constitution so what's exciting is number 36 the one we're talking about today is the last paper of that first section and next episode we're going to be getting into the second and final half of the federalist and i'm really excited about it i love 37 but today we're finishing up we're not only finishing up the first half in general but we're talking about the last section on taxation if you guys remember paper 30 was the first of these by hamilton called concerning the general power of taxation this is going to be short because hamilton just kind of wraps it up on this connor um, first quote that I want to read for you guys. And yes, the, the title is same subject continued. Um, let's see. Publius Hamilton says there is another objection of a somewhat more precise nature, which claims our attention. It has been asserted that a power of internal taxation in the national legislature could never be exercised with advantage as well from the want of a sufficient knowledge of local circumstances as from an interference between the revenue laws of the union and the particular states. The supposition of a want of proper knowledge seems to be entirely destitute of foundation. What we talk about in this first section, sorry, I just kind of ripped right into it. But Connor, he's saying that, wait, how can people at the federal level make decisions, especially about taxation, that are going to impact Americans of all different areas of the country? They won't have an understanding of the local issues. And when you put this big uh, one-size-fits-all policy down onto the people, it's not going to properly represent the individual issues different unique areas face. Hamilton kind of comes back at this pretty quickly with, listen, that's the whole point of a representative government. That's It's very simple when you consider it as, yeah, that's why these individual communities are electing people to represent them on behalf of the entire area, the community, in Washington, D.C. at the federal level. Makes sense to me. Totally. I mean, there's a reason why we have 435 representatives who are there to represent their respective communities. I mean, that's the entire premise. I mean, we don't. there's nothing profound to say about this. This is a really stupid objection, frankly, from the Anti-Federalists. They can do better. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, he says, No doubt from the information of the members of the county cannot th can the like knowledge be obtained in the national legislature. 
I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but um, yeah, it, it's a very simple objection to refute, and Hamilton does a good job of that. So I don't know why he spends seven pages doing it, but he does. I know this. This was an interesting take, and Hamilton finishes it too, and he says, "And and is it not to be presumed that the men who will generally be sent there will be possessed of the necessary degree of intelligence to be able to communicate that information, and so yeah. the information of their own local communities? This is a very basic concept." Each area of the country is different. That's why we have representatives that yeah. come and voice the concerns of their own community that elected them. And what do you know? That's the issue. I will say, though, I, it is understandable in the sense that certain taxes are going to affect different areas of the country. That's true. At different levels. Some are going to struggle a little bit more. But at the same time, he's also making the case that not only do people come and voice the concerns of their community, but they will also advocate on behalf of those differences and concerns. And right. so in the legislative process, that will work itself out. Yeah. And there's a patchwork or a, a kind of a, a legislative quilt that's being made in Washington, D.C., or this was the idea, to where it all sort of balances out and it creates this 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 harmony of rural and urban and uh, you know tradesmen versus you know farmer versus manufacturer etc it all ends up working out in the end uh, or at least that is the hope so we can kind of uh, talk about whether or not that ended up being the case but that's up to you yeah no I, and what uh, next thing that caught my attention is he brings up the census in the sense that uh, decisions are made appropriately based on our understanding of communities because it reminded me of what we're dealing with today where AOC, I don't know if you've seen her do this before, but she has said that we need proper documentation of um, un, or I guess, I don't know what they call it, but illegal uh -huh. citizens in the right. country, they should be included in the census in right. the sense that, well, half of the time they're saying that it's not safe to make these people be documented uh -huh. because then they'll be kicked out and deported. But then the other times when they're talking about getting welfare benefits and taxpayer dollars advocated or allocated to their communities, they're saying, oh, well, we deserve to be counted when it yeah. comes to congressional representation. Right. Because that only benefits the urban communities more than it does the rural. So the rural, the urban communities end up getting more apportionment in Congress than they actually deserve because they are representing illegal aliens as well as American citizens. It's bizarre that we're counting people who are not citizens in our census, which census, if you go back to the Greek and the, or the original word, just means accounting of citizens. Yeah. Right. So um, why we count non-citizens in that is purely a power play by the left, I think. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I think there needs to be two separate countings happening here. Yeah. I mean, we need I to definitely want to know how many, know how many totally. exist. Totally. I just don't want them included when we're talking about representing and allocating Com to communities representation well, and, it also, and, and taxpayer dollars and welfare taxpayer benefits. Taxpayer dollars as well as the electoral college vote too is the other thing that people don't talk about. So if you know anything about how the electoral college works, it's just the number of um, house members you have, how many, how many representatives you have added with the two senators, right? So oh. Texas is at, um, as of the last one, I think 38. So that is because we have 36 uh, representatives and two senators, right? So California, 55, 53 representatives, two senators. California would end up having actually, I think f the last time I did the math, which was a year or two ago, actually, so it might be updated. But the last time I did the math, California would end up with 50 electoral votes, 48 representatives, two senators, uh, because if you don't count the illegals in there, their population decreases by such a significant amount in certain areas to where if you only counted American citizens, the influence of California over national electoral politics is diminished by five votes. We've seen elections come down to, you know, one one electoral vote before. So imagine what five votes can do. And then you extrapolate that across New York and across Florida and Texas, et cetera. And then these smaller states, Alabama, uh, Kansas, Iowa, 
Texas even, they end up getting more electoral votes because those have to be evenly distributed somehow, so they go somewhere else. That mm-hmm. is not full of illegal aliens. It's not really, really get, important. Listen, not to get radical and to get off the discussion, but I was thinking <laughs> about what books I was assigned in New York State public school. And uh, I remember one of them being about an illegal immigrant that came across the border and started working at a young age. And it was like a, a sad sob story right. in the sense of trying to make the case for for her sad experience. And I never really considered what that had done to me as a young kid of more so just a lot of sympathy going mm-hmm. to that overall issue instead of the major problem and crisis that it's now become. Mm-hmm. And then also a lot of the... Uh, Have you ever thought about how school systems, maybe this isn't the case in Texas, but a majority of my school messaging about American history was on the civil rights era and was on division and and race. Yeah. And it's kind of strange looking back on it, all that stuff. Either way, I've read this book recently, Connor, called Age of Entitlement. I've been recommending that book to you for years. Really? Months. Yeah. I finally read it. Well, good. It changes. Everyone should read it. It's by Christopher Caldwell. We talk about it, it on changed the Charlie show all the time, and it changes the entire way you think about everything. Charlie's read it too? Oh, he's like the number one he's like, in the seller know? of it, basically. like He plugs oh. it all the time. No royalties or anything. It's just I didn't know if book. I was a psycho reading it, but I was like, I see everything a little differently uh-huh. now. Right? We, we get on <laughs> I've that been more so because, like, excited. I was going to get you a copy. How did I forget that you've been I, no, telling me to read it's that? A, it's like... It's a bit radical, and you're going to be like, am I allowed to read this? But I remember the, oh. one of the first like opening pages of it that I realized, I was like, this is like a thought crime book, was when it talks about Rosa Parks and how she's not actually like an American hero. You know, she's actually kind of a radical Marxist yeah. who was sent in by the Communist Party, frankly, um, to disrupt and um, dishevel America. Yeah, there's two different constitutions, mm-hmm. two different structures in our country. The Civil Rights Act is a little bit more Reagan. complicated than uh, we think. We need to do an, a Freedom Papers episode on Reagan. Yeah. And what happened. Okay, but I finally read the book. And I was Good. I was so excited because I was going to sneakily buy you a copy and be like, you should read this. No, I've been distributing copies Ugh. to everybody, so... Fine, whatever. <laughs> um, well, you guys, good book to read. Um, totally. Back to the topic. One issue. Okay, what we just talked about, this this issue of will, will local areas be properly represented at the national level? Kind of a silly argument to make. I think we both agree on that. Mm-hmm. Next thing, a little bit more understandable with the concern. We're talking about uh, oppression, tyranny being put onto the people because now they're going to what be taxed and controlled at the state and federal level. And, and are they going to coincide with each other? Are they going to double up and double whammy and mm-hmm. double smack to the face right. of American citizens? One, two, punch. What were we supposed to do? And so Publius says... Many specters have been raised out of this power of internal taxation to excite the apprehensions of the people. Double sets of revenue officers, a duplication of their burdens by double taxations, and the frightful forms of odious and oppressive poll taxes have been played off with all ingenious dexterity of political legerdemain. And then he, eh, let's go into it. He says, as to the first point, there are two cases in which there can be no room for double sets of officers. One, where the right of imposing the tax is exclusively vested in the union, which applies to the duties on imports. The other, where the object has not fallen under any state regulation or provision, which may be applicable to a variety of objects. In other cases, the probability is that the United States will either wholly abstain from the objects preoccupied for local purposes or will make use of the state officers and state regulations for collecting the additional imposition. This will best answer the views of revenue because it will save expense in the collection and will best avoid any occasion of disgust to the state governments and to the people. At all events, here is a practicable 
expedient for avoiding such an inconvenience, and nothing more can be required than to show that evils predicted do not necessarily result from the plan. Um, so people are kind of concerned about the double the double whammy, the one-two punch from a state and local or a state and federal attack in terms of taxation. Mm-hmm. Probably shouldn't say attack. Um, but what do you think about that? I think it's a fair concern. I mean, there's a reason why we put a protection against uh, double jeopardy, the double jeopardy clause of the Fifth Amendment, uh, whenever we were writing the Bill of Rights. So they say no person shall be subject for the same offense, be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. I think the same concept could probably apply to taxation as well. I mean, there's no real reason to be playing, paying double taxes on the same road uh, that runs through your state, be it federal and state taxes, right? So I think it's a completely fair concern, and it ended up fleshing out that it does happen to be the case more often than not that you're going to end up paying double taxes right yeah um and they say that it's just and it's justified for the you know the uh the 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 governance of the state and and the nation and it benefits the whole um but it is frustrating obviously because it's like well i'm already paying a buttload for for this thing to the federal government yeah and then the states are barely allowed to do anything that belongs to the federal government. Think about federal lands. Yeah. So why am I actually paying double? Like, where's that money going? Yeah. Well, and that was, I have a few thoughts on this. First, Publius Hamilton, I think it's a little silly for him to make the case, but somewhere in the paper, I can't remember, he says something along the lines of like, listen, if the federal government is taking taxpayer dollars for a certain program or initiative, mm-hmm. it means the state doesn't have to do that. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, have you heard of education funding? Uh-huh. Are you kidding? So that was one of the original things. I'm from New York State. Do you know about the SALT tax or the SALT deduction? So state and local tax deduction Uh is called the SALT deduction. In blue states like New York State where I'm from, we have the highest state and local tax burden in the country, or at least that was the case when I was growing up. California may be beating us at this point. So because of that, in blue states, people really like the SALT deduction because you can remove from your federal taxes the burden that you've already paid at the state and local tax or state and local level. And then that's not included in your in what you then have to pay at the federal level. So Mm -hmm. it's this little calculation that basically I used to be in favor of the SALT deduction, but now I'm like, wait, this is used. Maybe it's abused. This is the thing. Maybe I'm for it in its genuine sense, but it's now abused by blue state legislators Mm -hmm. that really want to high tax their people and uh, oppress their people with high taxes. It's used by them to get away with it a little bit easier. And then they say, oh, it's not fair that the federal government is trying to get rid of the salt tax, the Mm -hmm. salt deduction, because then we have to pay more in taxes. Well, maybe stop doing that to your people in the first place, and then you wouldn't have voters so mad at you when it's removed. Yeah, So they kind of abuse it. Um, I don't know. So so now that I'm in a state where it – like in Texas, where you don't have an income tax, I don't really think about the salt deduction. But to know that there's liberals in New York State that are getting it, and then what we have to pay the full amount for what our income is, even though we chose to live in a different state, I don't know. I see both sides here, and maybe I'm word salading it right now. I don't know. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I haven't talked about salt deduction in a long time because I've been on a communist New York State for a few years now. Yeah, I mean the salt deduction really is kind of a giveaway to uh, blue states. It's um. It's a tax cut for the rich mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And the same people who are bashing us for giving tax cuts to corporations and things like that, which, you know, we've heard me on the show dog on that a million times. But like, it's just, it's in one ear and out the other from from the left. They're um, talking out both sides of their neck. If I can come up with another idiot, I might. Um, 
but it, it's just simply a handout to billionaires in blue states and millionaires in blue states uh, to get away with paying less taxes while they continue to increase taxes on rural America and red states. So yeah. I, it's not a good thing. It's a good thing in principle. Um, I think you're right. But it, it has been abused more yeah. often than not. So, yeah. Interesting. Um, sorry, I didn't talk about that very smartly, people. Uh, next thing, to kind of wrap up the paper, he goes back to that concept of the energy of government and uh-huh. even brings in a safety aspect. And so what he's saying here, he, he's making a case with poll taxes. But in general, he's talking about how the federal government, even if they don't use some of these taxation powers, it's important for them to at least have access to these uh-huh. powers in case something happens at a national level where they need to get in a situation of an emergency, a larger amount of money to start funding whatever it may be required to fight it. And so I highlighted a little section. He said, there are certain emergencies of nations in which expedience in that ordinary state of things ought to be foreborne become become essential to the public wheel. And the government from the possibility of such emergencies ought ever to have the option of making use of them. He then says, and I thought this was interesting, there may exist certain critical and tempestuous mm-hmm. conjunctures of the state in which a poll tax may become an inestimable an inestimable resource. And as I know, nothing to exempt this portion of the globe from the common calamities that have befallen other parts of it. So we aren't exempt from right. the, the classic issues that other countries have faced, violence especially. He says, I acknowledge my aversion to every project that is calculated to disarm the government of a single weapon, which in any possible contingency might be usefully employed for the general defense and security. So in this sense, he's not talking about a gun or physical weapons. He's talking about money and the ability to use funds to whether bring up an army or fund whatever they need to do as the weapon itself. Right. And if you take it away from the federal government, how are they going to protect the people and do their basic job? Yeah. It's like having an emergency fund wherever you're an individual saving for something, right? You should always oh. have like a thousand dollars tucked away, right? So the ability to raise revenue is a weapon in the sense that it has to be uh, able to be employed uh, if you want to be prepared to counteract an emergency, like a war or an invasion or, or something of the such and such. Yeah. Like our strategic oil reserves, right? We have to have the ability to keep and maintain strategic <laughs> oil reserves. Um, it, my heart hurts when you bring that up. <laughs> I know, because then we're just kind of like you know, blowing them all away right now for no good reason. Um, but that's another subject. Uh, we won't even get into it. But yeah, every time I see in the news, Biden to release blah, 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 blah. He's doing it every From day. the oil reserves. I'm like, that is not a positive headline. Why do they twist it? Oh, wait, I know. Um, you guys, to wrap up this paper, <laughs> Connor... One of my probably top three quotes from The Federalist is in Federalist 36 at the end. Happy will it be for ourselves and most honorable for human nature if we have wisdom and virtue enough to set so glorious an example to mankind. It is beautiful. And he's talking about, in general, passing, uh, ratifying the U.S. Constitution and and building this government that was really unprecedented at the time in the 1700s. I think that's beautiful. And it did set a glorious example. It, it did and it will and and it does it, yeah <laughs> it's just been a little bit abused but just uh, like everyone like a phoenix rising from the ashes it'll come back oh i love that um you guys if you want to get radicalized and be a part of the cool people club with connor and apparently now charlie too charlie's one of the i feel oh. bad i here i am working at turning point and i'm like charlie's read age of entitlement <laughs> um it if you want to join it really did it, I mean, same for me i i was fascinated i was on my fishing trip and i was literally like <laughs> um, but you guys go get Age of Entitlement by what Christopher Caldwell Christopher Caldwell yeah alright we'll see really you next good. time bye bye